What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. You're listening to The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. I'm former FBI Assistant Director Frank Figluzzi. Join me on a journey deep inside the world's premier law enforcement agency to decode the mysteries and challenges of today's FBI. The threats facing America are as real as the men and women who battle to protect us. In this first-of-a-kind podcast, we'll sit down with active-duty FBI personnel who reveal their mission, their cases, and their lives. Let's go inside the Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. Homicides, sexual assaults, missing persons, and unidentified human remains. These cases are connected. 93 homicides. Somehow a computer could solve crime. I would be lying to you if I said I wasn't much more aware of the guy sitting in a vehicle on the roadside when I'm walking my dog at night. Molly Jane's Law. The sexual assault kit initiative. Unsolved cases sitting in evidence rooms on shelves. You're listening to episode one of The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. Our guest today is crime analyst Jacqueline Stanberry from the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit 4. She'll take us deep into the work and mission of her unit, and we'll learn some things we've not known before about the men and women and mission of the FBI. Jacqueline, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me, Frank. Jacqueline, let's start um, with the assumption that Few people listening understand the work of the behavioral analysis units. And let's start by explaining what your unit does and what you do every day to keep America safe. I am a crime analyst, as you said, with the FBI's behavioral analysis unit. We call it the BAU. And specifically, I work in the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. We refer to it as VICAP. So if you hear me say the word VICAP throughout this discussion, it's me referring back to the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. And essentially, our purpose is to provide crime analysis to state, local, federal, and tribal law enforcement agencies. We have a database, a national crime database, that we operate and manage Um, And with that information that is shared with us from state and local agencies, we conduct case linkage analysis and try to provide leads to law enforcement. So it sounds like you're connecting the all important dots when it comes to the most violent and serious crimes in our country and doing so in support of the cities, towns, counties, states that, that we all live in and the police departments that It helped to keep us safe as well. Do I have that right? You do. That is absolutely what we try to do. We are the dot connectors. Yeah. And there's something unique about your unit and unique's an overused word, but throughout the FBI, the units and squads, headquarters, um, Quantico and in the field are often mixed with agents and analysts embedded together. There's something special about your unit that is entirely composed of crime analysts. Can you talk about uh, the composition of the unit, what it takes to to be a crime analyst, and, and, and who's in the unit? 
Absolutely. We are lucky to be in a very unique position in the Bureau. I started my career in our counterterrorism division. I've also worked in our international operations division before coming to the BAUs. And what was different about those experiences was the fact that the teams very much were led by special agents in the Bureau. And a lot of times when people think of the FBI, they are thinking about those special agents leading investigations. Um, and is always approached with a, a team dynamic with a analytical component, and that was me. However, when I came down to VICAP, it is comprised wholly of crime analysts. And that makes it a little bit unique because it gives a certain amount of autonomy to the crime analysts to conduct their own analytical type of investigations. So I'm, you know, working directly with state and local law enforcement I have the opportunity to reach out to them directly, to work with them on their case, and collaborate with them in my own analytical investigations. Yeah, this is a great learning point, I think, for our listeners, many of whom might say, look, I, I could never envision myself as a gun and badge carrying special agent. It's just not for me. But they need to understand that the FBI is the majority of the personnel in the FBI are not special agents, but are professional specialists such as yourself some really cool programs that, that make a difference. Tell us a little bit about your background, Jacqueline. How long have you been in the FBI? Where, where did you come from and what led you to the Bureau? I have been with the FBI for a little over 12 years now. I was born and raised in Virginia. I live there still, just in a very different part. And from the age of about eight years old, my mom tells everyone that I said I wanted to work for the FBI. I had a very clear focus from a young age that that was something that I wanted to do. I was very much interested in TV shows like Profiler. There was a special on human trafficking that I watched that really got me passionate about the idea of helping people. So from then on, I really was very focused in the trajectory of how do I get to the FBI. And I was very fortunate that right out of college, really, I was able to join the ranks of the FBI and serve as a staff operations specialist. Well, I'm glad you did. And I think America is glad you did. We share something in common, which is that we both at a really young age had an interest in the Bureau and were able to not only pursue it, but to, to get to where we wanted to be. You mentioned the VICAP database, the Violent Crime Apprehension Program. What exactly is in the database and where does that data come from? I did. The National Crime Database is a database that VICAP owns and operates. And right now it consists of a little over, I think, 92,000 cases. And all of those cases are shared by our local law enforcement partners, um, so it's state agencies, local agencies, and some federal agencies, such as ourselves, the FBI, that are entering cases into that database. Specifically, we have a very finite criteria. Um, when you hear our name, the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, you think, okay, violent crimes. Um, but we don't work all violent crimes. We have that specific criteria to work homicides, sexual assaults, missing persons, and unidentified human remains. And the reason that we work those specific types of cases 
are for the fact that oftentimes we're looking for the cases that don't have a motive, that have unknown offenders, those that are thought to be part of a series, and definitely those in which foul play is suspected. The Bureau has some great programs that handle drug-related cases, and that's not us. <laughs> the Bureau also has great programs regarding gangs, and again, that's that's not our focus, simply because those are situations where the motive is, is known um, or expected, and there's just a very different approach to those cases. So we're actually looking for those cases that are a little bit unusual. And again, those are cases that are shared with our law enforcement partners. So Jacqueline, we've we've used the phrase connecting the dots. You, now we know a little bit more about where the dots are stored in the database. But tell us two things. What are those dots specifically about each and every one of the unsolved cases um, that are in the database? And then how do you go about connecting those dots? And, and, and what's, what's the eureka moment? How do you get a, to a potential eureka moment where you say, these cases are connected, these could be done by the same offender? Our database is comprised of a lot of dots. We actually ask about 90 questions to get a really comprehensive view of what a case looks like. And what makes our database unique and special, I think, is the fact that it's very much a behavior-based database. We are really trying to identify what is the behavior that the offender and the victim have in this instance that brought us to this assault or this homicide or why is this person missing. So what we try to do is take context around the actual assault that occurred. So we're not just looking for the forensic information, but we're looking for the full context around what exactly happened. So we want to know how the offender approached the victim. We want to understand how what the victim was doing at that time. If it was a homicide, what did the offender do after the homicide? Did he stay? Did he hide the victim? Did he come back to that scene? And so for us to be able to connect the dots, we have to take all these different cases and conduct really robust search queries, um, trying to identify not just the fact that a gun was used in a homicide, but how was that gun used in the homicide? Was it used to threaten them? Was it used to execute them? Was it one shot? Was it 26 shots? It really is about getting that holistic picture so that we can say, that not every homicide involving a handgun is the same, but what makes this particular offender unique and different, and how is it that we're going to approach that? Mm. It's fascinating stuff, and I, I think there could be a misperception from what we've talked about so far that somehow a computer could solve crimes, that somehow an algorithm could be written that would tell us the same person did these five murders or rapes. But how much of this is computer and automated, and how much is the human factor involved in the crime analyst work that you do? I'm so glad that you asked that, because I think when you talk about databases, there is that perception that if you have a database, certainly the database can tell you who did it or what is similar. And I, I will be honest, we do have an algorithm in our database that runs every night that looks for percentages of similarities. Um, essentially, what it does is it looks for 
those forensic points of, okay, a handgun was used in this assault, the victim was left outside, um, and it really tallies those in terms of what percentage of this case is similar. But what the database can't tell you is that, yes, these are similar, but when you get into the context of the narrative of the actual case, it cannot tell you <laughs> that this person had very specific verbiage that they used in each assault. And you would only know that by really reading through the details of the case. So maybe everything else is the same, including the offender description, but the way that he approached victims, the way that he left them, they're not the same. And the only way to really identify that is for one of our crime analysts to take a look at all of the data that the database tells us and those percentages and really put human eyes on them to cross-reference that information and confirm if that is, in fact, a viable, good lead to put forth to the law enforcement community. Got it. So that, that human factor is always going to be a, a major role in, in solving crimes. That, that makes sense to me. But it also sounds like this is a bit of garbage in, garbage out, for want of a better phrase, meaning if you don't get the proper information, if you don't get any reporting from state and local police departments, for whatever reason, you can't help them. So are there mandatory requirements for police departments to report certain types of crime and to, to fill out um, the, the questions so that you can help them help themselves? You are right on the money. Um, garbage in is garbage out. We are only as good as the information that we are provided. The better information that we have, the better analysis we can do, and the more viable, productive leads we can give to our law enforcement partners. So we do not require any police department to participate in our program. It is 100% voluntary, and it is their choice if they want to participate with us. If they do choose to participate with us, then absolutely, we have certain questions in that database that we are going to ask them to fill out, because if we don't at least have the baseline, it's really hard for us to, to move forward with our analysis. We'll be right back to continue our conversation with Jacqueline Stanberry and to learn about Molly Jane's Law. The Bureau is brought to you by BetterHelp, providing professional, convenient online counseling. We all know there are times in life when things can get overwhelming and unpredictable. When I'm feeling the pressure of anxiety of tough situations, I try to remember I do not have to face them alone, and neither do you. So if you're dealing with anything preventing you from living your happiest life, I highly recommend BetterHelp. BetterHelp provides professional counseling to help you navigate life's challenges. It's not a crisis line, and it's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. They'll assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating in under 24 hours. As you know, I've had my own challenges with post-traumatic stress and anxiety, and I know how important it is to seek help rather than to try to take it on by yourself. I love how convenient BetterHelp's services are. They're available for clients worldwide, and you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor, and you get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video and phone sessions. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches too, so it is easy and free to change your counselor if you need to. And it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. So visit their website and read testimonials like this one by BetterHelp user J.O. who says, I was a bit nervous and afraid to receive counseling. 
But Daria, from day one, has relieved my fears and concerns. Daria has been nothing but excellent, along with bringing insightful ideas to attack the issues that I have going on in my life, which have caused stress, depression, anxiety, and more. I truly feel like she's willing to listen to my issues and not be judgmental. So visit BetterHelp.com slash Bureau. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for the Bureau listeners. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Bureau. We talked a bit before, uh, Jacqueline, about some states taking the very positive step of mandating, at least in certain types of crimes, entering that data into the database. And specifically, we talked a bit about Molly Jane's law. What What is Molly Jane's law? What state does it involve? And is it something you'd like to see more of? We have been very fortunate that Texas has taken that step to create a mandatory reporting requirement. That is not something that is is universal at this point in time, Um, but we do have other states that are looking to follow in those footsteps um, and make VICAP required as an entry point for law enforcement. As it stands now, Texas is, is the only one that has the official law in place, and that is Molly Jane's law. And essentially what happened in that case was the victim was a young female in college. She was approached in her apartment. She was sexually assaulted and murdered. And when they found that offender, they actually were able to identify that he was also guilty of another sexual assault homicide and wanted for another sexual assault of another female. And so Texas looked at this, and Molly Jane's mother was a true advocate for this law so that the same type of thing did not happen to anyone else's daughter. Um, And they really pushed forth for legislation to require all Texas agencies to enter sexual assault data into the VICAP database. And that has certainly been very productive for us in terms of giving us much more robust information at least in Texas, with sexual assaults. Um, But it gives us a better picture as to what is going on. And fortunate for Texas, they have had some really good results from that. One specifically is that a Texas agency had arrested an individual on drug-related charges, not a violent crime charge. However, when they went to do his evidence and took a look at his phone, they observed a video that looked like a violent crime in progress, essentially a sexual assault in progress. The investigator was very familiar with VICAP, knew that sexual assaults were required to be entered into the VICAP database. So he took the initiative to go into the VICAP database, conduct his own searches based on the context of that video, and was able to identify the sexual assault victim in another jurisdiction in Texas and resolve that case. Well, this this sounds like a success story on two levels. One is it, it solved a crime, but secondly, it, it was a police officer doing the right thing and utilizing the FBI's tools to solve that crime himself. So tell me more about that. How many how many people do you have in your unit to cover, you know, to cover the globe as they say? And then and then how do you how do you train police officers to do what this officer did to 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 help solve his own crimes or his own department's crimes by learning how to use the database. 
within our unit, we only have 10 crime analysts to cover the entire United States. It really is amazing the amount of work that 10 people can do and accomplish. But in reality, 10 people can never, in a short amount of time, process and analyze over 90,000 cases um, with a database that is growing every day. So what we try to do is empower our users to use the database like this individual in Texas did by offering trainings. Um, On a regular basis, our analysts go out to their regional assignments and host in-person, well, prior to COVID, that is. Um, We used to host in-person, and now we've kind of refocused into virtual trainings. Um, But we do host hands-on database training to walk them through everything from the entry process of a case how to create queries and really get into the weeds of the database and produce, you know, search results that you can then review and see if you can identify those leads. So we are fortunate that our law enforcement partners have been very engaged with us and they want this training. We've gotten a lot of requests for it. So, you know, we're very appreciative to the whole community for their interest and their desire to use the database. And so we try to offer as many trainings a year as possible to get them comfortable enough to use the database on their own. And all of this training, all the all the database usage, that's all free uh, provided by the FBI. Do I have that right? You do have that correct. The database is free. It does not cost anything to enter your case. It also doesn't cost anything for you to call me and ask for analysis. All the analysis provided from the crime analysts within VICAP is all free. When we come back, we'll dive into the chilling case of serial killer Sam Little. I'm Greg Oliar. Four years ago, I stopped writing novels to report on the crimes of Donald Trump and his associates. In 2018, I wrote a best-selling book about it, Dirty Rubles. In 2019, I launched Prevail, a bi-weekly column about Trump and Putin. President Putin was extremely strong and powerful. Spies. Active measures. Actively meropriatia in the language of the KGB. Mobsters. And uh, Donald Trump obviously does a lot of construction. And so many traitors. Over the last two years that I've been here, I've been accused of all different types of things, and uh, all of those things have turned out to be false. Alternative facts. I drank beer with my friends. Almost everyone did. Sometimes I had too many beers. Sometimes others did. I liked beer. Trump may be gone, but the damage he wrought will take years to fully understand. The best is yet to come. Join me and a revolving crew of contributors and guests as we try to make sense of it all. This is Prevail. So let's get into some of the cases. They're they're fascinating and, and one that, that's got my attention and one that I think our listeners can actually potentially help um, in terms of solving um, involves not the bread and butter of the nature of your work, which is a kind of who did it approach, but rather a case uh, involving a guy by the name of Sam Little, who's more a case of you know who did it. And you're trying to confirm all the unidentified victims that he's confessed to killing. Tell us a little bit about Sam Little. Yes. So Sam Little is an individual who I would say over the past two years has gained a great deal of notoriety. He is a serial offender 
who has confessed 93 homicides, which is exorbitant. That's mind-boggling to think that an individual could commit 93 homicides. Did he describe why he chose to manually strangle women? From a very young age, he said he was attracted to the female neck. And he actually pointed to our Adam's apples, and he did not find that to be attractive. But because a woman has a smooth neck, there's something about it that he was attracted to from a very young age. And it aroused him. It certainly did. But he has made those confessions, and I think for a lot of people, their first assumption is, can this be real? Is this true? Um, and I will attest that we absolutely believe his confessions to be credible, um, not just for the fact that we have already confirmed 60 of those confessions, um, but for the fact that one of our crime analysts was actually on site when his interviews were occurring. And during an interview, they were taking notes on the offenses and then in the evening doing searches in the VICAP database to see if they could identify any potential victims. And one evening, I think after the first set of interviews, they reviewed the database and identified almost verbatim in terms of narrative an offense that they believed to be that victim. And I think that's when the whole team really became believers that these were not stories he was making up, but these were, in fact, 93 confessions of actual victims. So he was incarcerated and produced these confessions. We have worked to confirm them. We do have 33 that are still unmatched confessions, but we did a big media campaign to produce these pictures that he had drawn while in, in custody um, of these unidentified victims. He had a picture-perfect memory of, of who these women were and was actually able to draw them for law enforcement, um, and we put those up on the FBI webpage and ask the public if they recognize these women. And so if there's anyone out there who believes that their family member, their friend could have been a victim of Sam Little, that is still public consumption. It is still on our FBI webpage. And I certainly encourage them to take a look and see if they recognize any of those women because Sam Little was active for a 35-year time span and traveled to 19 different states. So there's definitely cases from coast to coast for him. I'd like nothing more than uh, some listeners to this podcast deciding that they want to see if, if they have any connection to a potential victim of Sam, Sam Little's confessions and to bring closure to the victims who've not yet been confirmed as Sam Little's victims um, and whose identities are not yet known. So check out FBI.gov, look for the Sam Little file and try to understand whether anyone in your town, county, anywhere you've lived that you're aware of is missing, um, perhaps found dead. Um, see if you can help out. Any further, any further uh, details on, the, on how our listeners, Jacqueline, might uh, get to the Sam Little spot on, online? The, the Sam Little information is available on FBI.gov. If you just go to the FBI's webpage and type in Sam Little, all of his articles will come up. Outstanding. All right. Any involvement in particularly 
distinctive methodologies by offenders. By that, I mean, among your questions that you ask officers to complete in the database, I I assume there are particularly unique subspecialties, for want of a better word, by certain offenders who do certain particularly graphic or distinctive things with or to their victims that make them stand out. How much are you exposed to the the incredibly graphic nature of some of these crimes? And how much of a role does uniqueness of an offender play in identifying commonalities? Uniqueness of an offender is, is critical to our analysis. I think it's the only way to differentiate them between another offender. And we do see a great deal of graphic content, and we can't censor ourselves from that because if we did censor ourselves from that graphic content, we wouldn't be able to to do our jobs properly and be able to give the law enforcement community the type of analysis that they deserve. So we do have to go in and look at the very specific details that the offender did to their victim. There, there is no way around that. So with our database, we certainly have the sections that ask for that type of unusual assault or trauma. Um, and we want them to be as specific as possible um, so that we can look at that and, and compare it to other offenders. So within that, we get very much into the weeds and very much into the minutia, so much so that, you know, one of the questions you would ask would be, um, for under unusual assault or trauma, one of them is vehicular trauma. Well, it's not just about being assaulted by a vehicle. Is Was the individual dragged by the vehicle? Were they pushed out of the vehicle? Or were they, in fact, run over by the vehicle? So we don't want just, yes, there was vehicular involvement, but we want to know how that vehicle was involved. Some of this is really tough stuff uh, to be working every single day. Uh, How do you and your analysts deal with this? It's not stuff you just turn off at at 5.30 p.m. when when you go home or, um, you know, you you have a weekend or a holiday. How how do you find yourself trying to distance yourself or is it even possible to do so? I don't know how possible it is to distance yourself from the material. I do think that you have to have some sense of compartmentalization to be able to recognize that this is something obviously awful that happened to someone, but it did not happen to you. And you have to be able to to separate yourself from, from their experience um, just to maintain objective in the case. But I would be lying to you if I said I wasn't much more aware of the guy sitting in a vehicle on the roadside when I'm walking my dog at night. I think it definitely has worked its way into my hyper-awareness of my surroundings, um, and it has certainly made me much more vigilant um, in my own life, having seen and read and experienced some of the things that these these victims have. Yeah, that's a. I think that's a common experience among uh, people who serve in law enforcement is this notion of hyper-vigilance. And I, I can recall in my bureau career supervising a Crimes Against Children squad in San Francisco, and I had very young children at the time. And I when I'd go out to the park with, with them, I'd, I'd immediately be scanning the folks at the crowd looking for a possible offender, an abuser. And uh, sometimes I would indeed be able to, 
to identify somebody because of the, the hypervigilance that occurs. But thank you for all the work you do um, in a very difficult role. Jacqueline, we've learned a whole lot about free services and support that the FBI provides to this, the cities, towns, communities that we all live in. Um, but I think there's also a lot to learn for those of us listening who may be city officials, may be law enforcement executives, um, about even more services that could be available to them to keep their communities safe. Tell us about grants and other options available to tap into programs like this. The VICAP program is obviously a free enterprise. We do not charge um, and we do not need any type of, of payment to be able to use our database. That being said, I know that in terms of investigations for state and local law enforcement, money can be an issue when working cold cases specifically. Um, and then also when you have situations like Molly Jane's law and, and Texas requiring law enforcement to enter a large amount of cases at the same time. And so we're very sensitive to that and have worked with other programs within the Department of Justice um, to identify ways that we can help our local law enforcement partners. Um, and one of those programs is the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative. Um, we call it SACI, um, but essentially the Sexual Assault Kit Kit initiative is there to work with law enforcement agencies who are working cold cases, who are working sexual assaults that ideally have a backlog of these sexual assault kits that have not been tested and need to be tested to move those cases forward. So if law enforcement agencies do have those types of cases, we do refer them to SACI, who is able to then provide them with grant money to have those kits tested. And the way that they break it down is that essentially half of the money that they will give your agency is for the testing of the sexual assault kits, and the other half is designated to help further your investigation. And that's anything from the investigative process, conducting interviews, travel expenses, all the way through prosecution. So they're there to really help and support you. And the reason that we teamed up with SACI and why that partnership for us is so important is that... Testing essentially will give you one of three outcomes. You will either identify your offender, you will come up with a unknown offender, or you won't come up with anything that the sample won't be viable and they won't be able to identify. In the first case, and if the person is identified, fantastic. That is absolutely wonderful. However, if one of the second case scenarios happens in which the offender is not identified, or if there is no possible DNA that can be used, that's really where the VICAP database and the VICAP program with analysis comes into play. So we really try to work together where they can help provide you funding and assist your investigation, and then we can come in and conduct searches and conduct similar case analysis and provide you with other alternatives that testing can't do. Yeah, the, this whole notion that there are literally unsolved cases sitting in evidence rooms on shelves with crucial physical evidence and, and other evidence. Um, and they're, they're just crying out, solve me, solve me. And that there are grants <laughs> available to make that happen. Um, you should, uh, any of our listeners who play a role in their local governments uh, or state governments or law enforcement agencies, 
should really ensure that you're availing yourselves of all available money um, to, to get these projects that literally solve cases. Speaking of literally solving cases, our guest today in the very first episode of The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi has been crime analyst Jacqueline Stanberry, who shared her mission, a little bit about her life and the men and women who come to work every day keeping us safe. Jacqueline, thanks for what you do. Give our thanks to everybody in your unit and stay safe. I will. Thank you so much, Frank. Thanks, Jacqueline. Join us for next week's episode, Long Haul, Hunting the Highway Serial Killers. The Bureau is written by Frank Fagluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey. The show is engineered by Matt Brousseau with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.